ride with me in my foul life. Podcast world, what's up? Chad Belding, the Foul Life Podcast. We have a major leaguer. We have a true life major leaguer that likes to duck hunt fly fish. Charlie Blackman, Colorado Rockies, starting right fielder, all-star, great man. They call him Chuck Nasty on Instagram. I love the reasons, too. The alter ego, the Chuck Nasty. Chuck has some questions for me regarding duck hunting. We just did a great episode, in my opinion, of This Life Ain't For Everybody about the approach of Charlie's career in baseball and, excuse me, his approach to the game. I like that talk. It was pretty cool, huh? Yeah, that was a good talk. Got some, we got some deep, some real deep questions answered, you know? I think, I think that I, I tried my best to, like, not be a, 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 just a baseball guy that was going after it. I, just, I'm, I was always interested in what it takes to stay there, and it's just the hardest game in the world to play, and I, I'm not kissing your butt. I just know how hard it is because I told people in a podcast yesterday, Charlie, that on my refrigerator in college, on my freezer – it said, I am one of the top 1,279 baseball players eligible for the draft this season. And I'd look at it every day. Yeah. And I never got drafted. And I just know how hard it is to first even get the shot, either free agents, or I mean, you know, a free agent contract or a, or a uh, being drafted, and then staying there and working your way up through the minors and getting there. So I think it's awesome that you've done it because I know how hard it is. I don't know how hard it is. I don't say it like that, but it's, it's kudos to you. But duck hunting has become a huge, a huge part of what, you know, you're, you, you say that your wife is catching you on YouTube late at <laughs> night and it's, and it's getting, it'll eat you up, man. So you're, you're loving it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm limited in my time, right? I, I can, I can only spend so much time, uh, actually doing things that aren't clubbing a rock with a stick. Um, and, and good thing that I'm, I'm good at that. You know, I, I think that keeps me from having to get a real job. And so one day I'll be able to, to pursue all these things, uh, that I, that I want to do on like more of a full-time basis, like duck hunting. But for now I'm relegated to, you know, researching and asking questions on this podcast. And, and so, um, as a guy who did not grow up duck hunting, you know, did not do this as a kid growing up, I've come to it as an adult in the last few years and really liked it. So I'm trying to drink from a water hose right now. Like, you know, there's so much out there and I'm trying to learn and absorb because, because realistically I only get to go on a duck hunt, you know, a couple, you know, a couple times a year. Uh, you know, that's, that's the off season for us, but I, I really need to be training full time at least for the next few years before I can like really throw myself into to a duck hunting season. But, um, from afar, I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to learn, there's all these flyways, you know, there's, there's so many different websites and I know that they're banding ducks and, you know, I'm sitting here in Atlanta where we don't have a lot of ducks and I'm trying to figure out where, where should I be hunting? Like, where do I go and where can I reference on, the internet probably like like where i need to be going where these flyways are i know they're banding ducks and there's got to be studies done out there about you know like where they are and I, you know i'm seeing some maps on on the internet but like like if i want to go and give myself a really good chance of shooting ducks like is there a resource that i can find online or is it word of mouth or you know, is, is it some study that's done by a college where they're banning all these ducks? Like, like, how do you go about it outside of your, you know, years and years of experience in your network? Yeah, I think that there's, you know, different websites or different resources, message boards, forums that you can go on. I don't know how 
honest a lot of people are going to be when the ducks get in their area. Are they really going to tell you like, hey, man, we're, we're right outside of Wichita and we just got a huge push of birds and, 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 and risk a lot of people, you know, maybe migrating to that area. Um, I think a lot of that gets blown out of proportion as far as the, uh, most people's ability to activate and get somewhere when the migration happens. There's a few select people that have a lifestyle that, that are a lot of that, you know? So I think one of the main things is obviously experience, because if you're reading on a website, like, all right, well, historically there's a lot of ducks in Fargo, North Dakota. There are, but there's also a lot of pressure in North Dakota from Minnesotans and South Dakotans and people that go to that area. So I've always tried to figure out where that pressure might push good populations of birds and through that of being able to get off of that beaten path or the normal areas that you always heard of somebody going to North Dakota or when I went when I would when I would hunt Montana people would be like you're hunting ducks in Montana and I'm like yeah that's why because nobody does it it's all elk it's all deer all the time and it's amazing so like if I was going to tell you to do the first thing is obviously you're going to have to entrust in somebody to let you know with your schedule you get done late in October if you're in the World Series if you're not you're still getting done in early October late September you don't have a whole lot of time to get ready for the season so you're probably going to go on a lot of trips to where you're going to need resources and boots on the ground to help you and I think that that's where uh, you know a partnership like you have with myself or anybody else that that hunts ducks in certain areas of the country you start relying on that so yes word of mouth becomes very proficient but what do you do now do you book are you asking do you want to book uh, some hunts with an outfitter and you're asking my advice of an outfitter that works hard and is going to put everything into the hunt to make sure that you and your family or your dad or whoever goes with you has a great experience mother nature obviously doesn't cooperate all the time and there's not going to be just an influx of ducks everywhere you go but i would tell you to concentrate on river systems because I feel that ducks, once they cross the Canadian border and they're up in northern United States, I think they follow river systems. I think they follow the the entire Columbia River Basin out of Oregon is amazing hunting. Tons of corn, tons of opportunity. If you get to the eastern side of Oregon and you come down through Othello and you come down through the Tri-Cities and then you come down into west eastern Oregon from Eastern Washington and then into Idaho. Now you get to the snake river corridor, amazing duck hunting, but it's never known just up until two years ago, you weren't allowed to outfit for waterfowl in Idaho. So a lot of people never went to Idaho to hunt because you couldn't pay a guide to take you. It's amazing duck hunting, the entire snake river corridor, Boise river. Now you get back up to where we originally talked with in the Missouri river out of Bismarck, North Dakota and down through, you know, all the way the, where the miss the Missouri river flows. If you follow that flyway, you're going to find ducks. And then obviously the Mississippi River. My favorite place is kind of close to where you grew up in Arkansas, in Atlanta, not a very far drive to Arkansas, is the river system that you hear a lot of people talk about is the the funnel to where the Mississippi comes down and then you have the Arkansas River and then you have the white and you have the black and you have the cash and you have all of these fingers of rivers that these ducks have naturally migrated from to where when they're up in the very top of the country coming out of Canada, it's this big. The top of the funnel. The right. top of the funnel. And then all of a sudden they get down and the, all these ducks are following the Mississippi River and these ducks are following the Missouri River. These ducks are following the Arkansas River in Kansas and then through Oklahoma and then they're coming out of, you know, of north of north of Arkansas, Missouri, and all of a sudden it just 
like this. And then you got there. then you got the Mississippi Delta over here, and it's funneling in. And then you got Oklahoma and Kansas, and all those ducks are funneling in. And then all of a sudden, they're in the Grand Prairie of that entire finger finger. Um, formation of those five rivers i just named are all coming down and all you know flowing into the mississippi but as they do that they're going through the rice country of arkansas a little bit north of i-40 and northeast arkansas on the memphis tennessee border and then all the way down pretty much to the louisiana border down south of stuttgart arkansas which is considered the duck capital of the world now that doesn't mean that you're going to go there and you're just going to have an excessive amount of ducks all the time. It has its issues, too. Up north, there's a lot of corn. There's a lot of flooded corn. There's a lot of manipulation of land up there where people are farming for ducks. Then you got the refuge systems. Then you got the weather to deal with. And do we really have a true winter going on? Ducks are very resilient. They're not going to leave an area unless they absolutely have to. And what does that take? Frozen water and too much snow on their food source to eat. And then they'll move, move south. But to answer you, I'm being a little long-winded but if i was going to where do i hunt where do i hunt i would study river systems and i would become proficient at getting you know communication lines going on in those areas and that's what i feel we're lucky and humble to be able to do is that we can follow those river systems and know kind of where the big populations of ducks are as they you know they get down their migratory routes and then once you get there it's how do you how do you hunt them and, and I think that that's a big part of where you're going is like our, with an outfitter. Well, yeah, he's responsible for a lot of it. You go to Arkansas, there's a huge amount of opportunity to freestyle and, and, and hunt public area if you want all over this country. There's a lot of it. A lot of it's private, but there's still a lot of opportunity. So it just depends on what kind of experience a duck hunter wants to get. But where you're from is the least amount of really good puddle duck hunting you know the carolinas and the georgias and northern florida and even eastern alabama is tough and then you get a little bit west of there and you start coming into mississippi and louisiana and then arkansas a little bit of south tennessee's really good in a lot of areas especially the i-40 corridor around memphis so right in your backyard if you just came west on 40 Mm -hmm. and got around memphis and then started getting into jonesboro and that area of arkansas i think that you're going to have a lot of opportunity for really good duck hunts through tennessee through southeast missouri through northeast arkansas and that's where i if i was going to pick one place i would live there not just on the kill ratio, but on the culture of the duck hunter, the culture of the lifestyle. That's where you want to be if you're a duck hunter, because that's where it is. You're up in North Dakota. Yeah, you'll kill ducks, but the culture's not there. You're not going to see the culture of the duck hunter so widespread as you are in that area of Arkansas, the Mississippi Delta, 40 over around Memphis and a little bit east of Memphis. It's just that's the duck capital of the world right there. And that funnel just brings them all down because of that river system. Cool. I, don't know, I don't know if any of that made sense at all. <laughs> uh, well, drinking from a water hose again. Yeah, okay. Um, that makes sense, right? Ducks like water, follow the rivers. That's, that's uh, I like rivers. Okay, cool. Well, if you think about it, a river is open all the time. So ducks right, always have access. Water, and like, ducks always yeah. have access to a place to sleep. And a roost is where they sleep. They can stay out of harm's way a lot with you know, big river systems where their predators can't get them and they just have to pay attention to birds of prey in the air. But rest assured, it's not going to freeze and kick them out of where they're trying to be. So if you find good, stable food sources on the river systems, you're going to find ducks. Nice. Okay. Next question. Um, so I'm, you know, uh, somewhat new, not a confident caller. Don't know if I am uh, certainly, no, I know, I'm certainly not ready to like 
be the man in charge on the call. What can I do as a guy who wants to contribute, but I don't want to step on toes? Like, do am I just like, you know, like where, like, am I just, am I just quacking, you know, like intermittently? You're talking about with a call. Yeah. I, I've got a call. I, you know, I want to eventually get to where I can do it by myself. Right. And, and I just want to, I want to be part of the experience. I want to blow on the call a little bit, but like I said, like, you know, if I'm hunting with an outfitter, I'm probably going to let him do his thing and I'll just shoot the ducks. Right. But maybe it's a situation where I know the guy or, uh, you know, I'm, I'm with some buddies and, you know, I, I don't want to be like blowing ducks off the hole. You know, I don't want them flaring out because I can't blow the call. You know, like how do I kind of dip my toe in the water there and in, 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 into the, the calling and the spread and, and, not, and then like get enough feedback to where I did that right. I didn't do it right. You know, like, like how, where can I, where can I go? Like, am I feed chuckling? Am I just, am I just like quacking in between? Like as they're circling, like, can you help me out there? Yeah, I think you can. I think the first thing that kind of what you do for a living is reading situations and knowing what the situation is. And then as a observer, what I always did when I, and I'm still learning, there's so many better duck callers, but one thing that I have pried myself in is my ability to read ducks and, and tell them what they want to hear when they want to hear it and getting the reaction that I've, that I demand pretty much like with the duck call and knowing what's going to happen if, if you hit them right. And that's a big part of it. How are the ducks posturing? What are their wings doing? What are their flight feathers doing? What are their wingtips doing? What are their feet doing? What's their beak doing? What's their head doing? And when I started to learn how to read ducks, I do what a lot of people call get them in a race. I would get them so excited. And my goal is always to get those ducks so excited to race to your spread because they can't wait to get down to that hen mallard quacking. So what can you do first? I become an observer and I watch the posturing and the body language that a duck tells me. Same thing in fighting, same thing in baseball, same thing in anything in life. You're negotiating a deal from across the table. I'm going to pick up on nuances. I'm going to read that person's body language, he or she, and I'm going to try to go here, or she's going to push me this way. And I'm going to, you know, battle back with this in a negotiation until we come to an agreement. And that's what duck calling is. It's a negotiation. You're sitting there trying to tell these wild birds something if that they want to hear to get them to think that you're authentic and real on the water timing is a huge part of that so as you're watching your friends call start to tell yourself as an athlete that you are and as a, a person that, that can read people is he even reading the ducks right or is he just making noises on a duck because he thinks that that's what ducks on the water would be doing i'm more of a shock shock jock when it comes to it to where when they're not expecting it and i see them going left to right and i get them out there a little bit instead of just being i'm just going to let them go and let them go and then all of a sudden i'm just going to stand on that first note and that first note is going to be that one that goes whoa and he's going to spin and then after that i'm going to let his reaction or her reaction tell me what's next but if he they don't react, I'm going to have to figure out something to get their attention again. That might be a little bit faster, Kane. 
And then once they do turn and I'm looking at them, now I'm really reading them. Are they staying in line with me and are they doing what I need them to be doing to get them in the kill hole for everybody in the blind to have a clean and ethical harvestable shot? And now that's my next mindset is I'm looking at this painting out in front of me take place and I'm throwing my oils at that canvas of trying to present this perfect picture for these ducks to believe in me. Now I'm sitting there going, all right, what do I need to do to keep them on course? Mm-hmm. Yep. So yep. just <laughs> so if, if I'm hunting with you and you're 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 the lead guy, you're reading the ducks, you're 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 turning them. Yeah. Um. And and I want to make the illusion there's more ducks. You're so, gonna so honor. I'm, I'm 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 focusing on confidence calling. Yep. You're gonna honor my calling just like two two pointers would in a quail field in Atlanta, in Georgia, where you're from. You're gonna honor my stance on the ducks, and you're going to compliment my sounds by if you hear me go. You're going to come in with a now. Is your pitch going to get my attention? Be like, what the heck was that? Who cares? Ducks don't always sound the same. They don't sound a hundred percent legit. They squeak. They squall. They they stutter out sometimes. Hen mallards get a piece of rice stuck in their throat or whatever it is. They don't sound legit all the time either. So I've never really been the guy that concentrates on like, well, that didn't sound good. But I would be the guy to be like, hey, just calm down a little bit, control the volume, get your hand wrapped around the end of the call more. But you're going to start to honor my calling, and now we're becoming a team of you're not going to get on top of my calling. You're not going to hear me go. And you're going to come in. You're going to honor that. And you're going to wait until I get to about my seventh note, fifth note, whatever I'm doing. And you're going to come in. And then I'm going to hear your note. And I'm going to go, all right, Charlie's got that. And then I'm going to react to what your call just did. And that might be, I'm going to, I'm going to do a little bit more of an older raspy hand because you just did a younger duck. And the more you hunt with somebody, the more you're going to get those honor codes of like, what's next? Oh, Chad's, Chad's, feed chuckling he must have some ducks on the string because now i'm telling yep keep doing that keep doing that keep doing that as soon as they start to venture off a little bit nope don't do that no 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 and get them back in line and then you're going to read me he just said no 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 so now i'm going to give him a get him back online and then chad is all of a sudden going back into his chatter so now charlie's sitting there going all right we're giving this confidence. We got them on a line. I don't need to do a whole bunch. I might add in some lonesome hens. And now you're just hitting a few lonesome hens in there. Then you might hear me stand on a note. And I might be tapping you and I'm telling you over here, there's a bigger flock working. Forget about these ducks that we got on a line right now. And the next thing you know, this big flock has got with this little flock and now we're we got a Mondo wad going and now we're really working them and there's different sounds going on in the water. We're pulling the jerk string. There's ripples going. And then all of, all of that came from you hearing that note that I'm doing and knowing in your head, like, Oh, that means this each cadence, each note has to mean something. It's not just decoys are on the water. We're trying so to I'm not just ducks. throwing out like, you know, like chatter confidence, not just trying to sound like way more ducks. It's, it's everything kind of falls off the point, man. I, I, I think that if you heard me go into a real heavy chatter like that and we're in the flooded timber of Arkansas and we have them working, we have them in a race, yes, you want a raft of ducks, meaning that is where they're at. And that's what all of those ducks in the air are seeing and pretty soon 10 will be 30 and 30 will be 100 because they all just keep coming to that well those ducks that are making that happen of all the other ducks leaving the rice fields and they're up there and you can see them they start to funnel down into that same area that these ducks are working you it's because those ducks are you're keeping that your goal is to keep those ducks interested because they're not going to commit to that hole as others start to join up confusion starts to take place so those ducks have to 
hang out a little bit more up there to get their formation right. Mm -hmm. So now all these other ducks are coming in there and they're not going to commit because these ducks are all have them contorted. So your job is just making that noise in a raft of ducks when the time calls for it. It might not have called for it when we saw the first six go over and we got their attention. And now that six is what is generating all of that energy and bringing all those other ducks in. And that's when Charlie and Chad and the other callers up against the trees are going to go into a big raft of ducks. Because naturally, when you're over a big raft of ducks, what you're trying to paint, because now you have a, a large audience, you have to be more than just one duck down there. Mm -hmm. You're there, that one duck just going, Meh. She's not going to keep that big flock of 200 ducks attention. So that's when you start doing all of the, the confidence stuff, the chatter, the separation calls, the feed chuckles, the lonesome hands, and you mix them in with bouncing hands. And all of that, obviously, you're going to have to go into the mechanics of the call and what you're doing with your, your abs and what you're doing with your diaphragm and what you're doing with your lungs and what you're doing with your throat and your muscles in your throat and the larynx in your throat, which is that muscle that you use to fog your sunglasses or your mom's window when you're a kid. You're using that muscle in your throat and you're talking with really pressurized stomach air from your diaphragm, just like one of your best singers are going to sing from their stomach, not from their mouth. They don't fill up their lungs with air and just go... And say a bunch of words, you know, they're singing from their stomach and they're holding notes. And that's what hen mallards do. They, they build up that pressure and they go. And it's pressure. Like I punch Charlie in his stomach as hard as I can. And you're all of your air's gone. And you're trying to tell me a secret. And that's a hen mallard. That's a coyote howling. That's a, a elk bugling. A coyote goes but it's all pressurized there. So now you you start to think, all right, well, if I'm going to team call and I'm going to honor other people's calls and I don't want to be told to leave my calls in the truck or at home even, <laughs> you have to start thinking like, all right, what's my diaphragm doing? Do I know how to control my lyrics? Do I grunt into the call, which is an absolute no-no? Do I puff my cheeks, which is an absolute no-no? What is my back pressure doing? What's my elbow doing? What, how important is my wrist? How important are the fatty tissues of my on-call hand? How important are the fatty tissues of my mouth and my tongue, commission, tongue position and the gums below my bottom teeth? How important are my teeth? How important is the air pressure around my lips onto that call and any air getting out of there? All of that goes into becoming Kenny G as opposed to Willie D or whoever, whoever, whoever was the worst saxophone player of all the time or whatever Kenny G plays saxophone, right? But you, those guys have unbelievable lung control and lung capacity and air control and pressure and they can talk with their stomach. So if you talk with a lot of passion or Axl Rose sings a verse of Sweet Child of Mine, he's doing it with passion from his diaphragm and standing on those notes. So if you, could, if you think about that, if I had a napkin, um, I, I do this thing with a napkin. If you, can you grab me a, a piece of tissue or something? But there's, if you think about how a, a mallard talks and how you present your air to a call, this is the first thing that I tell people is I have a, I have a, this is a Kleenex right in front of me at five inches. If, if it's your birthday and we sing you happy birthday or you're singing me happy birthday and I blow those candles out, that goes right to you. If you're a duck and a duck's blowing those candles out, it goes like this. The air's still coming out. You can feel that as clean as day on my hand. Pressurized air being controlled with my throat, my larynx, and that that tissue doesn't fly off the table. When I blow a birthday candle blow at it, it flies right into your head. It, 
this way. So if you picture that, if you just picture that drill at your table tonight with your wife and you're wearing her out on the duck hall. <laughs> so look at that. That air is hitting it, but mm-hmm. it's not moving. Right. And that's the presentation of air into a single reed duck call, like that one that you have right now. That's taking the elbow, calls to your mouth, and your, hand, your arm is in this position. And the first thing I tell somebody is drop your elbow, but leave your wrist and hand in that same position, making a snake head or a duck head. And that's the pressure that you want on your arm and your elbow when you, when you first hold the call. That's the ultimate amount of duck pre- back pressure with a duck call. It's just like that. A lot of guys blow like this. It's just like a, you know, the power position in a swing, right? Mm-hmm. There's only one really power position for your wrist, and there's really only one power position to start your back pressure with on a duck call, and it's just like that. Gotcha. The, the duck head or the snake head. And then it's all that, that pressurized hot air coming from. It's like when you're a kid with your bike tube and you got that pump that you would press down on, those foot pumps, and you'd hold it down and you'd pump that air into Well, every time you'd press down, what would happen? pressurized air would go through that little tiny hose into that little tiny nipple on the tube and put air and blow your tire up. And that's what you're doing is your diaphragm is being pressed down by your abdominals and it's a pump inside your stomach and you press down on it. And that hot or that hot pressurized air works its way up to the lungs, gaining power into the throat where it hits the larynx. Now it gets that that's the larynx working. Then it gets to the back of your mouth and then your tongue, your roof of your mouth is shaped like that. And your tongue is in that same position with the tip of it anchored down below your bottom teeth where your gums meet your teeth. Mm-hmm. Right behind it, your tongue, the tip of your tongue is anchored down. That air comes up the, your throat, hits the larynx, gets to the back of your mouth. It travels over the tongue, down the tongue, and straight through your pierced lips. As soon as you puff your cheeks, the air goes this way, it goes this way, and it's getting way manipulated by the time it gets to the call, making for way less, way worse tone. So it goes over the tongue, down the tongue, through the pierced lips, into the call where you have your, your on hand on, creating that back pressure with your, your hand I just described, snake head, mm-hmm. and it sounds like this. Not, you're not grunting. It's that, I punched you and you're telling me a secret. That bike tire. And that's this. That's the air pressure and the and the mechanics of getting to the point of you going. All right, now I can read the ducks. I got a good call. I've practiced my mechanics, and now it becomes timing, and authenticity, and that all comes with the confidence. Just like you know what you do for a living and hitting a baseball is the more you do it, the better you get. The more instances that you put yourself in to see ducks, read their posturing, what's their body language telling me timing what john's doing on a call what i'm doing on a call what you're doing on a call all of it mixes together to create that raft of ducks that's realistic to them again that was long-winded but it's a it's a uh, a thing that i don't hold lightly because it's a, a long process to get there of making from going from your first quack to getting to the point to where your hunting buddies are like Get your lanyard on. Let's roll. We're going to work on this. Same with Canada goose calling. Same with calling predators. Same with calling turkeys. How proficient of all of these different levels of jargon. That's why we named the company Jargon. Because jargon is the specialized vocabulary amongst a group of people. The things that you say to your teammates or that John said to his fight team or that his coaches say to him when he's in the octagon or what your teammates say or your coaches say in practice is 100% different than what's being said by 
air traffic control to a pilot or what surgeons say to each other in the operating room. There's jargon on all these different levels. And that's that specialized vocabulary that we talk as duck hunters, that we, the second form of jargon is the jargon that we talk to our dog because it's completely different than what I say to my duck hunter buddies. I say completely different words to him. And then the third level of jargon is a duck hunter is what you say to the wild duck. So you got all these different levels of vocabulary and vocalizations going on from duck camp to the dog to the wild duck. And that's, that's kind of uh, what we're trying to accomplish. So when I'm practicing in my truck by myself, it always sounds different to me while I'm blowing the call, like, you know, like when it's coming out of your mouth, do you like, do you step back and maybe, uh, record yourself right call, 100%. like just do it on your phone hundred percent? because it, you know, it's like the only it, way. when I, you know, I, I'm, I'm playing it through my speakers trying to like, you know, like make the same sounds like this tutorial is or whatever I'm watching. And it just always sounds different coming out of my mouth. So, like, you, you know, I guess I got to record myself, check it out, and play it back. And that's a lot more accurate than... Yeah, if you listen to yourself talk on TV when you're doing an interview, it's way different than what you think you sound like. Every time I'm like, is that really me talking? Because when I'm delivering to you right now, I think I sound pretty good. I think I look pretty good. I think I look pretty good. Then I look myself on TV and I'm like, you look like crap. And you sound way different than I thought you did. Same with duck calling. By the time that sound leaves that call your ear can't react to it to get the full tone the pitch everything that's coming out of it the best thing to do and what you said about your whole you know about how you're using your network and your resources historically people in this industry will tell you i was the absolute worst because i started duck hunting very late in life 26 27 years old and i wore people out i did a podcast a couple weeks ago in nashville with fred zinc that owns zinc calls in ohio and he and he told the audience that um yeah the phone would ring and my wife would look at caller id and she'd be like it's that dude from nevada calling again and freddie'd be like oh you mean the one that will blow his call for nonstop?" my point in telling you this is that i thought that this man could really tell how I sounded over the phone. And the whole time he was just obliging me with manners of saying, yeah, go ahead, let me hear it. It's impossible. You blow your call for me over the phone, it sounds nothing like what it sounds like in, 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 in real time or being in the same room. So record yourself. Play it back. Record short, like we talked about in baseball, you know, working on the little things. I work on a quack. I think that the most important, I think that one of the coolest things about a duck call is being able to go from, to a flat quack to a pressurized quack all those are ducks if you listen to wild ducks hen mallards make all of those sounds and you can get there on a duck call just through you know messing around that changing your hand positions letting that sound bounce off different parts of your palm and the fatty tissue in your hand using your fingers to manipulate i press down with my index finger and i point the call more into my hand i let pressure off and i point it up i might put these three fingers my my middle finger my ring finger my pinky up i might close them more i get my wrist here the more you get advanced you can start moving your wrist around and moving your hand around one thing i would tell you never to do is flap Flap, flapping messes your timing up and it will make cause more mistakes and all it does all it's done by by proficient callers is is it looks cool it just looks cool the best duck you'll get
and my hand's not moving a whole lot. No, it's just not my moving. wrist. No, just I mean, my wrist. Half an inch. And I know? and I learned that so long ago of like, why do I look like this? And the best duck callers in the world are barely moving their fingers at all. They're just moving their wrist and pointing that call in and out with the pressure of their index finger, and they're getting all those different ducks. So why complicate it by doing right, all this right. and less all that? Movement's got to be better. Let, can, just like in a baseball swing, back it all up together and, yeah. and your transition. And, and this are here, you're just losing all your pressure. You're yeah. just letting all that pressure go that you just built up because all you're doing with this on call hand is you're lengthening the insert. Mm -hmm. So here's your barrel. Your barrel's the mouthpiece. Your insert's here. All you're doing is lengthening that insert with back pressure. As soon as you go like that, all of that pressure's gone. Your duck's gone. So flat quack would be the one that I would have my hand open the most. Now, my partner in jargon, Chris Cifrio, is an absolute genius of duck calls. And he can make these things do things that I've never heard. And I'm not giving you the best sounds. I just know what to do as far as like the flat quack and the mechanics of the hand and everything. He could come on here and do a five-step series of five different ducks age range. And you'll go, oh my gosh, that's amazing, right? And he can make, he can t go from a, Doing the same, like the same quack, right? Yep, just just same thing. run you through like young duck, old duck, middle-aged duck. Raspy duck, wheelchair, duck. wheelchair duck, retired <laughs> duck, grandma duck, all of that stuff. And, and, and he, in to watch him transition, cause I'll just sit there and I'll go flat, coarse, raspy. And then his best one is called the boss. And when he hits this boss hand, you're just like, Oh, it just makes, it just shakes the timber and it makes goosebumps. No pun intended hair on the back of my neck stand up. And I, and I'm not there yet. I can't get the boss hand like he can, but when he hits it, ducks literally will just put their parachutes on. And they're in your hole and he, he can control ducks and you can do it through the vocalizations. But a lot of it is what we talked about earlier in the timing and reading the posture and the body language. If you can't do that, if you can't sit across the table and you and your agent and you're talking with the owners of the Rockies on your next contract deal, your agent has been trained for years to read people. Those guys can just go in there and read people and bounce. And that's what they do. That's what duck hunters, that's a negotiation, man. They're just negotiating with that flock of ducks of like, one, we're real. Two, we sound way better than the guys down the road do. Three, we look more real. Four, we're, we, we're hidden a little bit better. Five, we know you were here yesterday because we scouted hard and we know you were here. So we're over here waiting on you. So now if we mess this up and we know you were here and we can't get you to come back here, then it's on us. Mm -hmm. And it's just like anything in life, man. If you know that something's going to happen, you can decoy somebody in pretty good. Hot women have been doing it for years. McDonald's has been doing it for years. They see those golden arches. What do we do? drive through well maybe not you and maybe not everybody but a majority of americans are decoyed by those golden arches <laughs> and it, and it and it you know it, it's just the way it is ducks are geared to go towards realism they can pick you apart from a bird's eye view if your decoys look like they're sitting in concrete they're not coming in if there's no ripples on the water Ducks are always moving. Even when they're sleeping, they're kicking their feet and they're kicking up sediment. So what does that tell you? When your duck, when your water settles after you set your decoy spread up and it just sits there, it's not real anymore from the air. It's got to be chocolate milk because ducks are always stirring sediments up. When, even when they're sleeping or they're bowing their head under the water to get an invertebrate or a piece of grass, they're always moving. And that water is always being manipulated. So it's chocolate milk, right? So all of that is what we touched on in the last podcast is like, man, how cool is something that you have to think all about all of that. And when it all comes together, it might be for one time in the hunt, it all comes together. 
And we have to be ready to capitalize on that opportunity because if they cooperate and they do what ducks do and it's magic, it's a, so majestic to see what ducks do. That's why I'm eating up by it. I've never seen a more athletic animal. I know that there's real fast mammals, but the way that ducks can cut the air and the way they can go from a mile tall to in your lap in such a hurry and so with so much grace is amazing. And that's what really turns me on about the duck hunt. It's, it's like the fly fishing is the, your, the, the, the whole approach and presentation is everything. As opposed to a deer hunt, yes, you have to scout. You have to, you have to you know, get your breathing down and you have to execute a shot if it's a long distance rifle shot or if he walks under your tree stand with a bow, you have to execute that. But the, the platform and the presentation of a duck hunt or a fly fishing excursion is everything to me. It's just all the moving parts of a baseball game. It's the most... There, it is the most strategy sport in the world is baseball. And duck hunting is the most form of strategy in any hunting that I've ever done. And I think that fly fishing is way more stra- strategy than any other form of fishing. Maybe catching marlin. There's a, there's a lot of strategy that goes into offshore fishing for sure. But catching trout consistently on a fly rod in a moving body of water in Oregon or Arkansas, which has amazing trout fishing in the White River, it takes somebody that knows what they're doing to do it consistently. And duck hunting is no different. Wow. Too much? Never. Too much? No, no, no. So, <laughs> you see the wheels turning. Yeah. <laughs> man, I'm going to have to go back and listen to this one again. Um, all right, I got one more for you. I, uh, so, the, you know, this off season, I went on a, uh, went, went with an outfitter, went on a hunt. We had a great time. Um, but what should I expect? Like, you know, say I, I'm a, a, you know, in my situation, I don't get to go hunt a lot. I'm probably not going to be able to put enough time into it to get my own lease. You know, maybe I get a chance to go with a buddy and just kind of, you know, just show up and shoot. Um, but chances are for me, I'm not going to be able to put in a ton of scouting. You know, I'm not going to be able to drive a couple states west and, 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 you know, scout and, 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 and spend a lot of time. I'm basically going to try and show up and shoot. So if I hire an outfitter, go on a, you know, an outfitting trip where I show up, what should I expect in terms of uh, how long we hunt every day? How many uh, guys are sitting in a blind? Um, what, it sh- what, what does the rest of the day look like? You know, things like that where, um, you know, I, I'm relatively new to it and don't have tons of experience. And, I, you know, I don't know. Like, like for me, like if I don't get it done, you know, uh, deer hunting or something, like I might just sit out, you know, like, you have to go back the next day or, you, you know, you sit a little longer or like change things up. But how does that look from a from an outfitting standpoint, knowing that, um, you know, they've got to be successful, you know, tomorrow, uh, next week? You know, they can't they can't overhunt a hole and, and blow all the ducks out, you know, uh, every day that can't you know, that's not something they can do. But what should I ex- what should I expect? I think that if you have the ability to book a hunt when the ducks are there, first and foremost is important. If you're booking a hunt out a year in advance um, because you know you have these dates open, it's so hard for an outfitter or you to forecast that. I mean, Mother Nature might throw a huge curveball at you and just you might not see the sun for four days and you're trying to hunt the timber in Arkansas. Um, I, I like the ability to 
activate quick and have an outfitter that will call you and say, Hey, Charlie, we got them get here. It's going to be, it's, we have, we're going to have a, a good chance this, this next two weeks. If you do have to book it out in advance, some of my expectations are transparency, obviously of what kind of conditions and what kind of leases and what kind of hunts are going to be available to you and your hunt party while you're there. Do they have, is it Arkansas and do they have timber or are you going to be in a rice pit every day? Do they have the ability to get you on an afternoon hunt? What does the rest of the day look like? Depends on what you want. Some outfitters will get you on an afternoon goose hunt. Very, very few timber hunters are going to ever put you in the timber in the afternoon because ducks really are using, they come off the rice that they sleep on and come into the timber in the morning. Most outfitters are out of there by 10 a.m. The rest of the day, you go into Stuttgart, you visit Max Prairie Wings, you go to the Sportsman's and have a burger and a beer, or you you have an outfitter that has access to speckle belly goose hunting or snow goose hunting, and that can be really strong and entertaining in the afternoon. But as far as like the the conversations that you're having with this outfitter, very good questions you have is like, well, is it a meat market? Are you just bringing in as many hunters as you possibly can? Or are we going to have a, a, a sense of... Um, you know, do you want us here kind of act? Like, are you going to be personal with us? Are we eating dinner with you? Or is it just, hey, you're in and out, you're in and out, and it's because I don't like that kind of situation. I like to find a reputable outfitter that really puts on a show and doesn't try to pull the wool over your eyes. The hunting is there, but what what does the lodge have to offer? What does the surrounding area have to offer? How many got, do you get the whole camp to yourself? Are you there with a, a chance to meet some new, new friends but not overdo it with filling the camp with 40 people? Those are all questions that I ask outfitters all the time is, well, how many people can you sleep comfortably and how many guys can you hunt? How full is the camp going to be on any given day? Are we going to have space to do our own thing? What do you do with the birds once they're killed? Do you process them for us? Do you leave a wing on for transportation with a copy of our license in there and making sure that that outfitter is following the law to a T? Because when you leave to drive back to Georgia, it's illegal to take those birds without a wing on them. The game warden has to be able to make sure he can identify every species that you have in your cooler and how many is under Charlie's names, how many under Charlie's dad's name, Charlie's brother's name, Charlie's buddy's name. And you can't go over your possession limit when you leave Arkansas. So you got to make sure that you are following all of the laws. If you're jumping from state to state, the best thing to do is call the local game and fish and find out what do I need as an out-of-state hunter to hunt ducks in your state. Don't rely on the clerk at Walmart to tell you that. That's your responsibility and the ignorance is no excuse for the law. They say I've been, I have been given a ticket, which I got out of it, but I was given a ticket because I relied on the knowledge of the clerk, which I was like, well, they, if they're going to be an, you know, a somebody that's given the right to do this through the government, then they should be knowledgeable. It's your responsibility. So if they tell you the wrong thing and you buy the wrong license, it's your responsibility. Mm. So I've always tell people, if you're going to start traveling and duck hunting is so much different than any other form of hunting, in my opinion, also because of all of the different ways you can break the law. And I don't like to bring that part of it up, but you have to because it's probably the number one or number two reason why more people don't duck hunt. We only have two and a half million duck hunters in the country, 14 million deer hunters and four and a half million turkey hunters. Two and a half million people duck hunt. Why? One, it's the weather. Do they, can they can control that? No, it's in the water a lot. They don't like that a lot. Maybe. It's a very expensive sport. You've seen it with the equipment you need, decoys, the boats, the dogs, the four-wheelers, the this and leases oh, yeah. and that. But the main reason, in my opinion, is that it's hard to not break the law. Can you identify every species of duck? You can kill two canvasback. Well, 
Did you know that was a hen canvas back that you just killed? Or did you think it could have been a redhead hen? Or did you have any idea it could have been a gadwall? Has a lot of the same colors as a gadwall hen. Do you really know what you're shooting at when you're pulling the trigger? Do you know that you're almost over your limit of this species? And if you pull a trigger on a sprig again, you just broke the law and got a $200 fine and you might lose some points off of your license. So all of that goes into play of like, man, I got to be on my A game. If these ducks come in, I got to be able to identify them now. I got to make sure that I do. And then you got the whole thing about how many guys are shooting and how many ducks can you have? Who's, who has the ducks while they're back in them? All of that goes into that outfitter and being able to say, all right, are all of this stuff, is it followed a hundred percent? And it's not just, we come in, kill ducks and we leave with them. We get pulled over and we're in trouble there. I would ask all of those kind of questions from what kind of fields are we hunting? What kind of timber are we hunting? What kind of, what kind of food do you serve at the lodge? Uh, is, there inter, is there a continental breakfast in the morning? You know, if you really want to know what to expect, don't be afraid to ask them anything. You know, really, you're spending your money to go have an experience. And a lot of outfitters, they pride themselves in that overall experience. Mm-hmm. But it, don't be afraid to ask anything. So, what, what, like, in your opinion, you're hunting a timber hole in Arkansas. You know, how, how many is the right number in, you know, hunting, hunting one piece of water or how many is the right number? What's too many in, in a single blind? Um, you know, assuming you probably have, uh, you know, a guide or two on either end of the blind, you know, like, like, what does that look like? Like what's, when is it too much? Like, is there a number that's too little? To, to bring in your hunt party? Yeah. I think when they're in the timber, if we're still talking about timber, when they're in there, you can't beat them out of there with the bat. When the ducks get into that part of the country, you will find guys that hunt 20 guys to a hole and get crazy with the loud duck calling and rafts of ducks like we discussed. And they kill a 20-man limit because their ideology is they're not in here the whole time. They're using this part of the timber because there's fresh water in there. They're coming in here. We found them. We found the raft of ducks. We're on them, and we're going to kill them because they can be gone tomorrow. So they're going to stay on them until they're out of that timber. Now, that outfitter might have one track of timber. He might have 1,200 acres of timber and a lot of different ground to hunt. But once they're in those trees, I wouldn't be afraid to bring eight or ten guys into a hole, depending on how many guys want to go on your trip with you. And that might they might break you up into two groups in the morning, depending on if the ducks are spread out. Um I, I don't really like being in a blind in the timber. Outfitters offer it to where there'll be stilted blinds or box blinds. I like being in the water up against a tree. If you have an outfitter that knows your hunt group and knows that you guys are safe first and foremost, but also you're not moving around and showing the ducks your face, you got your face masks on and, and, and you know, you, you're doing what it takes to hide in the shadows of that tree and knowing where the ducks are going to approach from. So, you know, which side of the tree to be on at any given time. So they don't see you and pick you apart. The dogs are hidden the right way. I like an outfitter that lets us stand up against the trees and kick water and be part of the hunt. I don't just want to be in a blind. Now that might suit you. And that's fine too. Cause when the ducks get down into that timber hole, it's like I said, it's magic. So whether you're in a blind or up against a tree, you and your hunt group can have a great time, but I wouldn't be afraid to bring eight guys on a hunt. What if you're hunting a, a you know, a pond with like one main blind right there? How many guys? Yeah. Like, well, yeah. I just, I mean, if it's a covered blind and you can get your hunt group in there, I mean, there's ponds that I've been on that we're cooking breakfast, you know, 
inside the blind with a Traeger in there, and it's a real elaborate blind. It just depends on how elaborate it is. Or are you making a makeshift blind with a panel blind set up? The ducts are on this hole. You get in there in the morning, and you create what you call a false line. You go get some trees, obviously with the permission of the landowner. You can either cut down vegetation or trees or habitat around there and make your blind look like the existing habitat that's in there only with permission of the landowner and make sure that you put everything back the way that you found it, right? And make sure that the land looks better when you leave than it did when you got there. No shells and holes and candy bar wrappers and all that stuff, Copenhagen cans, whatever it is, everything's, you know, just pristine when you're leaving there. But yeah, that blind on that hole, it can be a makeshift blind, a real quick build in the morning with a false line in the headlights of the truck, some decoys around the blind on the dry land to show that they're swimming, you know, landing in the water. And then they're kind of swimming out and getting on the dry land and resting or picking the grass shoots out of the shoreline. And then you got your floating rig out in front of you with a jerk string and maybe a spinning wing or whatever. But yeah, I think, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable with, I've, I've had panel blind hunts with 10 guys in it and tree lines in Wichita, Kansas. And I've had them with, I've been in the blind with two guys where we got in there and, and, and did what it took to get a hunt on. It just depends on how many panel blinds you have, how long you can go and what your roof look like, because you're over, you got to have something over the top of you because they're flying so they can pick you apart down there. Now, will you bring, um, say you're, you're hunting a blind on water and, and, you know, hopefully they're up in your face, but maybe they're not, they're not, you know, maybe they're just like passing by out deep. Are you taking a couple different shot sizes or a couple different lo- loads with you on every hunt? Or do you just kind of, you just uh, say, man, four shots, my shot. And that's what I'm sticking to or. Well, I mean, I, I think that the different, the different, uh, I mean, I, ammunition is so advanced today that you can kill a lot of big animals with smaller. I mean, I'm you kill take a 28 gauge on a mallard hunt and they're dead belly up. Four tens. My buddy just killed two turkeys in Florida yesterday with four tens, in Georgia, Georgia, not Florida. So the shot, the science of shot, and 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 some of the tungsten super shot and stuff that Federal's building in the black cloud, you can get away with it. I two shot on a combo hunt if you're gonna have a chance for canada geese and some mallards twos are good threes will kill canada geese if they're the lessers i I like a little bit bigger shot for the bigger canadas and the graders maybe twos or bb but as far as like the distance of a shot this is going to sound this is just my belief now you can do it and that's everybody has their own approach that's what makes hunting so cool I won't kill them if they're not 20 yards or closer. I won't shoot at them. And people get on me about that. But I just love to trick them and interact with them to where I know I got them. And if they're left or right in me or side shooting them and stuff, it just doesn't do it for me because I've seen what they can really do if you do it right. And if we got to make an adjustment to get them in our face or whatever, move our blind, whatever, maybe we just pick up and say, hey, we're going to hunt them tomorrow if you have another day or the wind's going to do something different the next day. But I don't, I don't like shooting them at over – 15, 20 yards. I like them back flapping, chest up, belly up, right in your face and doing what they do. Now, if you just want to go out and kill ducks because you want your grill filled that night and you want to feed the family, then yeah, you can take a two shot. You can take threes because the smaller the BB, the more they can get in there. Upping your chances of those ducks running into them as long as your patterning is there and the way that you shoot your gun and keep your barrel and muzzle moving through the shooting zone, spreading out that pattern and letting that duck fly into it. One thing about hunting on water and you're shooting at longer distances and it's got cattail edges and stuff, make sure you have a good dog. Because if you do cripple one and he swims there, he or she swims into that, those cattails and they're starting to get away, you're not finding them. As great of athlete as you are, you're not hunting, you're not huffing and puffing over there and your nose is not going to smell that duck. So a good duck dog, which is a good friend, but also a conservation tool is going to be able to get in there and, and win that, get downwind of that duck and use his nose to bring it back. And that's 
what we owe that bird is not to leave a crippled bird out mm -hmm. in that water in those toolies or, or whatever it is so yeah you can kill them at longer distances if you really want to see them at 60 yards guys make that shot i just look at him and be like why the chances of crippling that bird and him going out and falling in the field and having a fox make his night miserable is way it was way less cool than letting him go and getting the ones that you're meant to kill they're going to do it you guys got to kill your ducks and your geese there's no sense in shooting a bird at 70 yards in my opinion now some guys will call in and say you're an you're an idiot that don't tell us how to hunt and i respect that too i'm not a good enough shot to do it and i think more times than not you're going to cripple that bird that's just my opinion i like to get my skills to the point to where i can read that bird and say we'll get him tomorrow we'll we'll go find him after this hunt where he's going there's going to be more of them there and we'll hunt over there tomorrow we'll get him tomorrow for just flying over us and showing his ass like that we'll get him but i don't need to kill him at 70 yards to feel good i'm just going to watch him fall out of the earth and i don't need to eat a duck that bad mm -hmm. i love to eat duck but not that bad pat answer. good take no no good take but i you know i only get to hunt a couple times a year and one exactly comes close enough like i'm shooting three shots at <laughs> i'm shooting three shots at <laughs> and that's fine you know? too and, and that's fine too. and i figure you know that's that's uh well you're at the beginning of your game yeah, as you, it develops the well, rules will change a little bit for you know maybe. that's you know i i mean i i certainly know like uh, i'm not going to shoot you know i'm not you know i don't have a chance of knocking down every duck i shoot at and and i try and take the best shots i can and but, you know. Oh, there's always going to be times where you're going to pull up at 45 yards and you're yeah. going to stone a duck. And there's nothing wrong with that. I just, I just, myself, personally, I've gotten to that point to where I really want to trick them. And I think another part of it is probably the cameras because we hunt with cameras so much. And at 45 yards, he looks like he's 70 on camera sure. because of film, you know, and video. And no matter how strong a camera you're filming with, you still, you know, that's that still can look pretty far away, right? So I think that my filming over the last 15 years has gotten me to that point of man let's let them be ducks yeah let's let you know, them let, do let's what go for it let's go for that like ultimate experience have yeah, them right let, in your face but i don't want you to take a, the takeaway from that comment to be like oh charlie's got two days to hunt in the off season go do your thing and have fun first and foremost i'm just saying respect the resource some and the less cripples the better because yeah. nobody wants to see a bird yeah. suffer right that's right. all i was trying to no, say i'm with you on that yeah cooking them and cooking them back at the at the camp that night and the all the different recipes and tragers and the things that we do with a lot of these rubs and spices and marinades and stuff i'm all about that that provider mentality i love that part of our life i love knowing that i can go kill my meat i i think it's the coolest way to be in life i think our job on this earth is to be a provider and i think that our ability to go out and paint a picture that's real and get them tight and kill them responsibly and ethically to where they don't feel a thing that's my goal Yeah. because I love the meat they provide and the table fare and the bounty they provide, but I never want to see a bird go through any pain or a coyote suffer in a snare trap. And, 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 you know, I'm not, I guess I am getting a little kind of, um, not political, but a little bit of, of this is a, a privilege. It's not written into our declaration that we can do this. It'll sure. be, it could be taken away at any given time. We do have the right to bear arms, but to hunt, we have to be responsible and it's going to be a hunter that takes us down if it happens by doing unethical illegal stuff that makes that sheds a bad light on hunting so i try i know it's a coyote and i know the first thing that most people hear about a coyote is f a coyote and i'm like no that's the most adaptable animal in the world i got the utmost respect for that animal i don't want to see it suffer 
if I'm going to go predator hunting and I truly believe in predator management like I do and my family does, I want to shotgun them at eight feet by being the most proficient caller and hider I can be and tricking them to where I can triple on them when three of them come in with a 12 gauge and not trying to hone my skills at 550 yards when their vitals are that big with a 22-250 with the wind blowing and manipulating my bullet and the ballistics and everything. I want to be able to get them tight and kill them dead. No suffering. Even though they are coyote and they raise hell and havoc on a lot of different animals and, and chickens and cats, we we built our stuff into their country. You know, we took over their land, so we can't expect them just to sit out there and go, oh, well, okay, we'll move out of here. Yeah. They're not, it's not, so anyway, that's just my insight on it. It's like no suffering. No suffering at all. Kill them dead the first time. And that's the responsibility of a hunter. I mean, we kill stuff. I love to kill and eat. But I don't want to have ever have a suffer. So I don't even know how this is going down that rabbit hole. I don't want it to sound like don't kill a bird at 45 yards. Do it because the ammo will do it. I just like the majestic of, of seeing them do their thing and back flapping. And it doesn't always happen. I've just gotten to the point in my career to where I'll just come back tomorrow. You don't have that because you have a different life and you only have a certain amount of days that you can hunt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say. I'd rather see him too far out than not see him that's for sure oh there's a hundred percent there's so many days that you're going to face out there that where you don't see him and you're just like what is going on and the wind's not there and the birds aren't in the area i mean it happens you got to take advantage and capitalize on the opportunities and if that's a 45 yard shot and you 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 what what are you trying to get out of the hunt that's what i ask myself am i if I want to hone my shooting skills, I'm going to the sporting clay range. If I want to kill a duck, I'll kill him at 45 yards because I know I need some food. And I've said it on film. We'll be like eight minutes left. I'll be like, or 20 minutes left. I'll be like, guys, we need six ducks for dinner tonight. Let's just concentrate on those little things. Let's get six ducks in here in the next 20 minutes and see if we can feed ourselves tonight. And that's, you know, and then we'll go do a meat hunt. We'll try to cook dinner. Mm. So just different ways to look at it. I like it. Are you sure? Yeah. Yeah, I like it. Like, there's certain things I won't do on a trout river just because I don't want to fish that way. Like, I want a certain experience, you know? Like, I won't. I'm not a. Does that make you snotty? Does that, does that make, make me. Does that make you a, uh, no, a that, prima donna? No, because it, it just, doesn't just, make me the, like, like the, uh, the, you know, the purist who looks down their snouts at everybody. I don't, I don't think that's it. I think it's just like, I enjoy doing it. This, you know, this is what I want from the day. And. I'd rather do this with less success than to do something else just to say like I caught more fish. And that's exactly that's all I was saying really. Yeah. Is that's all I'm saying. Same thing. I just don't I just don't ever want it to come off like I'm telling somebody how to hunt because I've I've been that guy to where I'm like I don't think you should jump shoot ducks. I don't think you should sneak up on a pond and smoke them on the water and let them get up and kill them on their on their house. You don't shoot a turkey out of a tree. You don't kill a turkey off the roost, even though I could sneak in there and right when the sun's coming up, I could go, whoom, and smoke him. You just don't do that. There's just some things yeah, you don't yeah, do. But, well, because you want the sporting aspect of it, right? But that, I, I've been educated by guys, though, that their grandpa's been jump shooting wood ducks in Georgia since the 30s, and you're not going to tell our family how to hunt. And I get that. And I, I respectfully declined my answer or, or what's it, refuted my, my comment and said, okay, you've educated me on that. I get that. That makes sense. I didn't mean it that way, but it came out like I was looking down my snout going, you shouldn't jump. I'm this new kid coming into the into the duck hunting block, and I'm trying to tell these trailblazers and old timers like, don't be doing that. And I, yeah. I I I kindly said, you know what? You're right. Do what it takes to have fun out there. Just respect the resource, and you know, put that first and foremost, in my opinion. Gotcha. Do you want to go hunting with me this fall? That would be great. You would go. Yeah, assuming we're not still playing baseball. 
Well, now, you might be playing at Christmas all scheduled. Yeah, like I don't know how that's going to look. And once again, it makes it really difficult for me to plan things. A lot yeah. of things are up in the air. A lot of the unknown. That's my life. The right unknown's now. not good. Yeah, because you've made a comment in the last podcast, like this time of year, the next seven months, every day and every minute of your life is structured. Yeah. And now and, you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. And then it's tough for me once I finally get you know get to the off season. It's tough for me to then say, oh, let's let's plan more more stuff. I usually like to just wing it. My favorite thing is the uh, like. I'll decide Thursday night that I'm leaving somewhere Friday morning for the weekend, you know, and just kind of like, oh, like let's. Well, when you're so structured for so many yeah, months, it just feels just, good to have yeah, it go away. I, I like the spontaneous decision making that I can do in the off season. Yeah. It's the best. Duck hunting can be spontaneous. A lot of structure to it, but it's fun to make moves that you didn't think you were going to make that morning or that afternoon just because you noticed something. And that's the, that's the coolest thing in the world. Like driving by a hole and going and just like seeing one flash and go like, what was that? And slam on the brakes and get your binoculars up. And you're like, oh, oh, look at this. And you're like putting hand in your binoculars to your buddy in the passenger seat. And they're like, we got to get on that. And now it becomes like this freaking Indiana Jones and you got your plot maps out and you got, you would use on X maps, you know, and we're oh, looking yeah. like, Oh, there's the, there's the landowner right there. Let's try to call him. And then he doesn't answer his phone, but his neighbor's there and I like, Oh yeah, he's down at the bake sale downtown. So now we're in this downtown little small town in Kansas <laughs> and we're walking around and we're looking for this guy because if we don't get an answer soon, we're not going to be able to get back there to set up for the afternoon hunt. And it becomes like this total treasure, you know, uh, uh what's that? What's that? treasure chest not a treasure uh, hunt but uh what's that hunt when you get a clue and you got to go find the thing scavenger scavenger hunt, hunt. Yeah. it becomes a scavenger hunt for ducks and it, you're just putting all these little pieces together and it all comes together and you're taking that picture with your buddies after that you just had a hunt of you know just a great experience and you're fired up and laughing and, and high-fiving it's the best it's like winning the championship kind of <laughs> except it's not yeah, a but you can do it for 60 days in a row that's Oh, it's the best, the 60-day season. Well, you can do 105 We're out here. 105 is our season with a seven mallard per day limit. Yeah? Mm -hmm. If you want a fun hunt this year, and I'm inviting you right now on this podcast, if you want to join us this December, assuming that you're not playing in December, (laughs) there's two feet of snow on Coors Field today. Charlie Blackman is (laughs) in his mud boots. Um, Speckle bellies. You and your dad or whoever you want to bring, come out to California. Just fly into Sacramento. I'll handle it from there. All the lodging, everything. Ten, ten birds per man per day. And you'll see some stuff that will blow your mind. Wow. And then the duck hunting's unreal, too. We'll take you on some awesome duck hunts. But when the specs get there and they're using the dry rice, my guy there, who is one of my dear friends, Rocky Merlot, it's, I, this, this hunt right here is with a baseball player that I'm not going to name on the podcast. Okay. But th- this was our, my last hunt with him. Look at this. Give me a second. What part of California is it? Chico. It's north of Sacramento. You fly in, we're an hour and 15 minutes from the Sacramento airport. Will somebody please start playing the Jeopardy music? Oh, found it too late. don't you hate when people do this i'm just i'm like right there where is the video there it is oh man this is this is three days in a row of this oh my goodness successful hunt that's the best eating waterfowl in the history of ducks and geese in my opinion again is a speckle belly when they're in the rice wow and 
every shot is 15 to 35 yards and they're decoying in groups of which this is unheard of in speckle belly hunting but they're decoying in groups of oh my goodness why won't that go there it goes a lot of birds i'm trying to find one that gets them but they're they're coming in anywhere from 15 to 200 at a time wow big big decoy spread snow geese and specks and then like i said when you guys come out there we'll do some duck hunting too down in the butte sink and it, it that sounds awesome i'm telling you it's it's amazing so california is like number three or four every year in harvest right it's number one or two every year and duck hunters in the field licensed duck hunters in the field nobody thinks of california as because it's such nope. a weird state with their politics and their gun laws and stuff that nobody thinks of california and it is as good as it gets really as good as it gets the sacramento delta all the way up to the butte sink all the way down to the sultan sea the susan marsh the bay area right around san francisco has amazing duck hunting no way I swear on my life yeah, who'd ever think about going to the bay area for duck no hunting? no yeah the susan marsh like fairfield and all over the area to where like the 49ers new stadium is in palo alto and stanford and all of that area up through concord it's amazing duck hunting I feel like it'd be like $20 for a one-shot shell out there. <laughs> oh, it is. It is. It is. For a cup of coffee. Some of my buddies told that chew. I don't chew, but some of them said Copenhagen was like 12 bucks a can in California now, Los Angeles area, SoCal. That's bad. Uh, the, you know, they got the, the high taxes. They're trying to keep people safe. In Saskatchewan and Alberta, Canada, yes. the tins are half tins, so they're the same diameter, but they're like that thin. Oh, man. The Copenhagen tins. So I go up there, and we're at Ford, my buddy chews. So we go to the Mini Mart, and I get a Red Bull and tin of Copenhagen. And uh, the, guy, the guy goes, I'm not making this up. The guy goes, that'll be 39 bucks. <laughs> I go, what? A, a Red Bull and a Copenhagen? The Copenhagen is 34 bucks for that Come half tin. Come on. I'm not kidding. So a lot of times I'll get phone calls from the locals up there when we're going up there. I'm not even going to say that on the radio. Never mind. I'll tell you that off. But, yeah, it's for a carton of cigarettes, like, 40 or i mean it, like double here a case of beer in canada is 65 bucks no God case bless of America. beer yeah but they got free health care so they will well, they don't want you chewing or drinking or anything that is going to put you in the hospital and they got to pay for that that makes sense I that's guess. the only way i look at it you go to a you go to a bar and order a beer and you're going to be like uh no not today what do you do when you're snowed in <laughs> that's all there is to do up there is drink that's a tough and they one. do and they That's do, and they love it, and I love being up there with them. Charlie Blackman, starting right fielder, Colorado Rockies. Um, I mean, right where you play, the entire corridor from 25 all the way to Cheyenne on 25 North, from your your right field where you play in Coors Field, all the way to Cheyenne on 25, all the way east to the airport, and all of that Brighton area, and all of that stuff from Fort Collins and Loveland and Windsor, over to Johnstown and all to Just Gridley. all along that front range? The most amazing Canada goose hunting in the whole world. No way. The best in America, hands down. Did not know that. The best. I can introduce you guys up there. It's the best goose hunting in the United States. That's why we, I mean, I've, I don't know how many hunts I've been on in Colorado since the year 2000 was my first year there. And I'll never quit. You got the Rocky Mountains as your backdrop. You got the sun coming up in the east, right, at your back. And you're looking at the Rocky Mountains above Fort Collins and Loveland and Estes Park and that whole area up there. And you're, and you're seeing the amount of Canada geese that follows the Platte River. And you're like, and then the corn. And then it's legal 
to have pit blind to have pit blinds in Colorado. So every blind is dug or er, holes huh? dug down with fake fake lids. It sucks when you drive in there in the morning to set your decoy spread up and there's a cow in your blind because you stepped through the... It's ha- it happens a lot. Oh, man. And you're going to get the, the, the backhoe to lift them out of there with a the chain and shit. But yeah, that is... that. If, if you need some introductions there, that guy I was telling you about, JR, if you need anybody to take you during the season and you have an off day where you're like going to have a day off in the Denver area and it's, it's Thanksgiving through February 15th, that's got the longest goose season in the country too. Okay. So if you're up there and it's the later, well, you're already done playing ball by then. Yeah, but I might be there. So if you're around there and you need a hookup for a Canada goose hunt, I got you. All right. More connections are always good. Well, yeah. I mean, but I, I don't want to, I don't like to impose on your life because you're private and you're a celebrity and you're, yeah. I mean, you're Chuck Nasty yeah. and you just don't, can't, you can't walk around Denver like you can walk around Reno. I fit right in in Denver. Lots of beards and lots of like really rough looking. How how is it? How is it with with who you are? Because you do have a different look than a lot of ballers do. You got the mullet and the beard. Do you get recognized a lot in the baseball cities? Um. So Denver, you know that that kind of gets. I don't. I'm not going to say old because people always seem excited. Like if they recognize me, and that makes me happy. And usually in Denver, they're pretty laid back. Like, hey man, what's up? Like high five. All right, see you later. You know and. And that's the, you know, that's the kind of interaction I enjoy. And it, I mean, it doesn't happen a whole lot. It happens, you know, if I'm right by the stadium or we go out to eat after a game or something, I think it's pretty, it's pretty easy to recognize, you know, some of those baseball players. But, you know, other cities, I walk around Atlanta, you know, and it's just people might look at me funny, but it's not because they recognize me. They don't know you. Yeah. Well, they do. They're just intimidated by the It's a good, you know, that's a good thing. Yeah, I don't. I like to just you seem fly, like a, you fly see, under the radar. You seem a like a guy that flies under the radar. Yeah, that's my plan. Yeah. Well, I want to hunt with you. We'll talk about the California deal. I'll hook you up in Denver if you're around that area. I have a lot of my we'll, – we'll talk about that later, but that'll be an easy deal. I'll be up there um, for a week in May for my goddaughter's graduation from high school. Um, one of my best friends lives in Loveland, and his daughter, Lauren, is my granddaughter. So hopefully you're – I mean my goddaughter. So hopefully your, te- your guys are in town. And then I'm coming up September 22nd and coming to the game on the 23rd, yeah. and then Zach Brown's in town the next two nights. I was hoping you could go. It sounds like you have night games both nights. Yeah. 6.05. Zach's actually come out and hit some BP with us. Yeah, he plays in Coors Field the last three yeah. years or three out of the last four. He can hit a little bit. Yeah. Like sneaky. Every time I go, you know, I get to hang out and I'm humbled by it, but we're in the dugout. You know, we get to go to the dugout and then the, the green room is I get to go back there and the Clay and Coy and all the guys are are tuning their guitars in the in your guys' locker room and they all got their jerseys with their names on them oh, and, and the CR hats and the... Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's really cool. Those are nice guys. Good, good people. Good people. Yeah. And Dan, Denver loves them. You know, the, the line in colder weather... About she'd take Colorado if and he hits that line and and then he and then he's standing out on the catwalk of the stage last year, and Peyton was there. Peyton was at the the game or at the show, and I'm standing by Peyton, and that he just stops, and the crowd would not let him sing. They would not let him sing another line until I mean they literally gave him like a standing ovation and cheer for like five minutes when he said she'd take Colorado if he'd take her with him and the whole place lost loses their mind every year and the whole stadium just erupts man That's cool. and me and Peyton are back there just like holy smokes dude Peyton's a cool dude yeah 
Dude, I remember I met Peyton in the locker. I came in one, one day. Peyton Manning is in my locker room throwing passes to Todd. We're supposed to, you know, we're supposed to be like getting ready for a big game and but Peyton Manning's there, so it's like shut down everything. <laughs> and he uh, I remember he had a flip phone, like way after flip phones were flip phone like he should have not had a flip phone <laughs> being Peyton Manning, but he, he was like super down to earth, normal guy. I mean, I don't know, I say that like we're friends, but you know, he threw me a pass one time, so did you get a football that sign happened. by him? No, I was super nervous. And like, you know, he's a big deal, and like I was, I'm not, I'm not gonna bother the guy. He's just trying to hang out with his buddy Todd, and uh, you know, I, like at the least, I was like, I need a picture, and so I kind of thought there would be like a really good time to bother him about it, and and it turned out there wasn't, and so I was like suited up, like full uni, spikes on, like ready to play. I'm like, it's now or never. So I got a full uni, you know, picture with me and Peyton. Uh, right before I went out to stretch for the game. He's a cool. stud. Yeah, that's cool. Heck of a career. What about his brother? Is he a Hall of Famer? You like, that's kind of got a, those championships, you know. know he's that, got two that, rings. That's how, you, that's how you turn some heads. Did it for a long time. I don't know. I don't know, I don't know, any, I don't know enough about football. I don't, I don't I just know. I just – I would say Peyton had the better career, but his brother's got two World Series – or two Super yeah, Bowl rings, so it's tough. I don't know how you how – you... What a family. And I heard that, like – I heard that they got another one coming up. Is it – is it their so – it's not their a, younger brother, I don't think, or a nephew or something? I think their older brother is, like, really successful in the business world. I think. But they have another Manning quarterback coming like this year out of high school. There's, oh, really? Yeah, that's like just unbelievable. Did I not guess. Know that. Yeah, I got a bunch of friends that went to Ole Miss, um, and that's that's where the Mannings are from, I believe, it was Oxford, Mississippi, and that's where Eli went, and he's like Jesus, you're like God down there, like he's huge in Mississippi, and. Um, I don't know if it's Mississippi or somewhere, but there's a, there's a senior or junior and quarterback Manning that I guess is going to no be – they say he's better than all of them. I just heard that during Doug's season, but I don't know. I would take Peyton's career, the Colts and the Broncos. Charlie, thank you. Well, thanks for having me, guys. I'd love to go hunting with you. I can't wait to see you on the field. Get out there. Keep swinging it. If you need some hitting lessons, yeah. I'm, I'm just a yeah. phone I'll number away. I'll be sure away. not to call you. <laughs> <laughs> what? Dude, I'll show you. You want to see my videos of my BP with the majors? If I want to feel good about myself, I'll have you send me some video of your swing, right? And that'll make, you know. Was that an insult? <laughs> I'll have you know this. Triple A Diamondback Stadium in Reno. I got to throw out the first pitch and take BP with the Aces. Conrad Schmidt was the catcher. He went on to play for the Diamondbacks, and then he got traded to Texas. Um I I got to hit BP. No way. This is not. I'm not making this up. It's all on video and it's on the foul life. I they they rolled me in there. They had a jersey with my name on it, and I got 12 pitches and I hit the seven of them out over the right foot no, wall didn't. into the seven bullpen. Seven of 12. Seven of them, and I could call Conrad right now and he'll tell you over into the bullpen where the silver legacy and the El Dorado signs are. All right, I retract, I retract my statement. And I'm that talking is... lasers. I mean, if you hit it over the fence, you got to hit it pretty And this good. is from home plate. I don't want you to think I was at first base or something. <laughs> right. I don't think That's yeah. impressive. It was. I don't, I'm not saying I could do it again. And I was a little, I had a little bit better bat speed back then. But yeah. I, yeah, well, I, I would like to have, I would like to just go in there and have you look at my swing. And then you say, it's not bad. No, I mean, I'm, I'm on. I'm, do you remember the duck call question we just had about like, you're not looking bad. I was giving you hints on how to be a team caller. We got to be team yeah, hitters, yeah. dude. You know what? I'll. <laughs> I'll try and straighten that out before December. Yeah. 
Well, all right, man. Well, I love this. Hopefully, we get together that week uh, and we can do another one and see how the season's going. And yeah. it, I don't want to, you know, impose on your season. I won't catch you on a game day. Make sure I get a hit that night, you know? Yeah. Well, we get plenty of hits. You signed a bat for me down here last year that's in my man cave in my in my studio. And um, it was the gamer. You had used it every day of spring training until the day I got here. And for some reason, you gave it to me. Really? I get really attached to my bat. Yeah, like you that. say I it usually, on video. Like, I usually don't you remember? giving those yeah. out. You remember? remember you that, said yeah. it on video, and you said, I'm giving you this. I've used it every at-bat of spring training. I haven't broke one bat. And then I said it, and you had one bomb with it. And then you made a comment like, I like to save the bombs for when they count. Right. Yeah. That, well, that's true. Have yeah. you hit any, did you hit any? No, not year? yet. Once again, I'm on the same same path i was i was saving them up for for the season okay last question then we're gone what's the ultimate season this year and i know the team victories in the world series and the championships the playoffs are but what does your stat line look with batting average hits home runs and rbis ah yeah that's what's a good season for you what do you like to see you you don't have to tell me what if i hit above if i do above average for me like for my career like you know that's very successful and i would I would take that as long as we had team success. And what would that be? Uh, I'll I'll let you. I gotta look it up. Yeah, you gotta. Is look it three hundred? Yeah, if I hit three hundred, I'd be. Is I would, it? I would consider that a, a pretty good year. Thirty-one yeah. bombs. Um, I mean that'd be a little less than last year, but I'll take it. Yeah, I'll take it. One hundred and ten. I mean that would be way more than last year, so I'd definitely take that. What's the most important part of that? Is it on-base percentage? Is that the most important You know, stat my on? big stat right now is OPS, on-base plus slugging. So A you, so you got to get on-base, but it can't just be first every time. You know, it helps to hit some doubles and some homers in there. You are a double hitter. Now, what is your best 60 time ever? Ooh. Uh, college, I ran, you know, on pro day when I got drafted, I ran a 6'5". Six, 6'5". Five. Six, five. Which is pretty fast. I mean, that's pretty fast. The other day, I don't run that right now. Probably the other day, MLB did a a chart of home plate to first base. Did you read this? No. the The sprint speed of the top major leaguers, um, Kevin Kiermaier, Kiermaier, three point nine seven is tied with Bellinger. That's the one that surprised me. I had no idea yeah, Bellinger could run. He's really fast. Yeah, he's I had no super idea. Super long, really fast. Much better defender than people give him credit for. Yeah. D. Gordon, four hundred one. That's the he's, guy that got the homer on me that I told you about. He's. I didn't. I would think he'd smoke Bellinger. Like seeing D. Gordon run. I know he's shorter, but and he's not covering as much ground as Bellinger. He probably he? gets up to speed quicker. I w- I would guess. Ma- Malik Smith is four hundred three. Ozzy Abel. Albus is 404. Jose Altuve is 405, which surprised the heck out of me from the right side of the plate. Uh, those guys are moving. Yeah, I can't fast. believe he can run that fast. He's little. He's got those short legs. I know, but they don't cover as much ground. I don't know. Uh, Leroy or Lurie Garcia, 405. Shoei Antani is 405. That's That surprises me because he's a big man. Trey Turner is 406. He's a speed guy for sure. Brett Gardner is 406, which I uh, thought he'd be in the top two, top three. He's moving. Yeah, but he's not young anymore that's, but, I, but that's why fast. how are you not in there you're 406 uh, or better at first base i was i was there was a time yeah there was a time i used to be a speed guy steal bases that kind of thing no more i i'd rather hit doubles now yeah oh, man. let's go out in the parking lot i want to throw one to you and see how far if you can hit it 
That's Charlie Blackman. This has been another episode of the Foul Life Podcast. Thank you all so much. Please support the sponsors and partners that support us. Check out brand new episodes of the Foul Life right now on the Outdoor Channel. All of our old content you can find right now at Mo TV, the My Outdoor TV app. And don't forget to check out Jargon Game Calls for your new icebreaker, chit-chat, loudmouth, or small talk. Best duck calls in the game, in my opinion. JargonGameCalls.com. Thank you guys so much. Tom, hit that button. This song is called My Foul Life, performed by the rock band. 2 a.m. logic. Thank you all very much. <laughs>